Welcome back to Understanding VC. I'm your host Rahul. Today my guest is Carl Alomar. Carl is a managing partner at M13, a VC firm based in LA funding the future of work, commerce, health and money. Prior to M13 as DigitalOcean COO, Carl built the business from first product to over 500 employees and 250 million in ARR over 6 years and prepared it for its eventual IPO. Now let's talk to him. Hi Carl, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey Rahul, nice to see you. So I was looking at your LinkedIn and I noticed that you went to Harrow School in London, and I was reading about the school and noticed that you know a bunch of uh, British prime ministers and also the first prime minister of India went to school there. Yes, yes, I, I went there a long, long time ago, but but it is it is part of my history. I was there for five years, really enjoyed it. Honestly, it was an incredible educational experience for me and really set me up for kind of everything I wanted to do beyond that. Yeah. Uh, Lots so of very prominent people went through those halls. Yeah, yeah. Is is that the reason why you decided to go there, or? Well, I mean, the funny story about it is that my parents were probably less than organized, and so I was uh, in England. They have a, a common entrance exam that you take when you're 13 years old. At least they did when I was 13, and that common entrance exam was used to get you access into you know a whole selection of options in terms of private schools. And most people apply for these schools. Harrow is like an incredibly coveted school, so people apply for these schools when the kids are first born and stuff. So I'm 13 years old. I go do my common entrance exam, and I have no applications to any schools. My parents haven't really thought about it. I did very well I, academically. I was very good, and so um, at that point, it was like a mad rush with the headmaster of my my junior school. Calling and trying to figure out how they can get me into whichever school I was trying to get into, and Harrow was one of the first choices. But it was just lucky that they had a relationship and they were able to kind of speak on my behalf and and get me the the placement. But there was a good chance I wasn't going to get into any school because my parents definitely did not think ahead as most parents do, you know, these days. So you you're born and brought up in uh, London. Yeah, I grew up in London all my life. When I stayed, I after Harrow, I went to a university called Imperial College, which is you know top engineering school in in Europe. And uh, when I graduated there, I was twenty one. That's when I moved to the U.S. and started my career in the U.S. Okay, okay. You, you mentioned you're pretty good uh, academically, but beyond that, what were your other interests? I did everything. I mean, part of the reason why I loved Harrow is just gave you options to do everything. So from you know from participating in like school plays and musicals to playing on the rugby team and the soccer team and the swim team and just really as much of of everything as I could get my my hands on. I do remember being a teenager and like you know figuring out with my friends how we're going to make some money in the summers and you know set up mm-hmm. a little. I was like fifteen, sixty years old, and we set up this. Catering company to cater or bartender parties that are that the parents were having in the summer, and I was like a fifteen, sixteen-year-old had to pretend I was eighteen because I was serving people alcohol, and then just trying to figure out how to like build these little businesses that could make a little money and give us some cash in our pockets. But yeah, it was uh, yeah I did as much as I could. I was a very very active kid for sure. Yeah, I think more than one VCs on this podcast has mentioned about running parties to make money during the teenagers. I did that later. I did that once I was actually starting companies and I had no income, and so we'd end up doing in Los Angeles. I did that. We we had a whole series of parties that would basically fund our ability to start my first company, which was called Clivio Networks. Yeah. And then actually, when I was starting my second company in New York after my MBA, I actually joined a partner with a friend of mine who was. We ended up opening three nightclubs in New York. 
and really it was purely just to kind of be able to make the the cash flow in order to support you know whatever I was trying to build day to day and then as the businesses took over I kind of stepped away from that just survival it was just like what can we do to yeah. put money in our pockets and actually get to the next stage of whatever we're trying to build yeah and and talking about your first business so did you guys invent the the tech to actually see multiple videos across the internet yeah I actually had a patent on it I was listening yeah. in the path and so what we did it I mean, the thing I love about my my career is even in, you know, in categories where I didn't build massive companies, the, the, the themes and the technologies I see in today's world. So I felt like voice had the real luck of being in in industries and categories that are really, really moving in the right direction. And so back in the late 90s, 97-ish, we set up this company we went to China. We had, we had a, an engineer we hired who essentially worked with the Chinese partners. And this is in the 90s. Things were not sourced very readily in China in the 90s as much as they are now by any means. But we built a camera that was like, it looked like a regular, you know, those old school brick security cameras. Yeah. But inside it was all the software that essentially ran, uh, you know, this wavelet compression technology and then connected everything, sent out the video digitally through a Cat5 cable at the time into what was just now rolling out DSL, which was the first like non-dial-up version of the internet. Okay. And so super, super early, we were getting three to four frames a second, not that great quality down this pipe. But we built on the back of that, like a peer-to-peer -peer network that would deliver the, that, those video streams into you know the screens of whoever was trying to access the videos. Yeah, And so ultimately we got pretty good distribution on them. We got them out to everything from a lot of daycare centers where parents could look at their kids through to hospitality venues where owners were looking at the bartenders and the bars to uh, manufacturing facilities, gas stations. Like we were in crunch gyms as well, like a whole bunch of different applications. And it was all generally used just for offsite management of multiple locations. Yeah, And so people could look into their locations and see what was happening. And obviously at the time it was very, very novel because at the time the alternative was CCTV. And the only place you could see that is if you were sitting in the security office, you know, watching the cameras. So it was very innovative. And, and, you know, I think we had a lot of product market fit. It's just very, very early in the tech development side of things. And, and then the 2000 bubble hit and that made it you know, that obviously created its own set of problems that we did navigate, but definitely created its own set of problems. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this was another thing that I wanted to talk about because I was looking at your LinkedIn, great school, great college, you know, a bunch of companies that you've sold and now we see. So it looks like you've not taken like a wrong step. So if you could talk about like the most difficult or challenging moment, you know. Yeah. Question. Well, that's a multi-part question because there's a lot of them. Okay. But what we'll do is as we talk about the different components of my career, I can highlight the areas where it was really difficult. The most challenging part of my career up until that point was actually in mid 2000. We actually had secured a, a $20 million like series B at that, that back then, you know, there was no such thing as a series C there was a, and then B. it was very, very different in terms of how they named rounds. Yeah. But we had a $20 million series B round of investment signed, ready to go. And I was literally, the morning that we were going to sign the final contracts and get the wire transfer was the morning the market first crashed. And so I remember because we had a fire alarm in the office and, uh, and you can imagine, right, we're running out of money. We've got 20 million coming. We're like, 
over the moon, we're ready to grow, we're already gearing up for things that are going to grow. There's fire alarm in the office, everybody's downstairs in the parking lot across the street, and I get a phone call in, you know, what you could vaguely call a mobile phone back in those days, like my brick mobile phone. Yeah. And it was the investor, and they said, hey, we have just had, you know, markets have fallen out from under our portfolio, we're in a disaster recovery stage, we can't close this transaction today. We don't know if we're going to be able to close this transaction at all. And so obviously, you know, from that point, you've got that, I think we had 40 or 50 employees, like your heart just drops through the floor and you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I, maybe a month of money left. Yeah. And so or two months of money left. And so luckily, I mean, I had to go into high gear and just figure out how to solve the problem. We had two options. We could have reconstituted the round. There were other people in the round that were still willing to come in, but we would have had to reestablish the lead position. But then we also had two or three suitors trying to acquire the company. And so ultimately, you know, I kind of felt like, okay, this this doesn't feel good. It feels like this is going to continue happening. I think there's a bubble and it's going to burst. Yeah. So I just got lucky making that assessment. And then so we started entertaining the, the, um, the acquisition offers. And so we navigated that and we ultimately got to an acquisition. But in that process, we had to, you know, do my first riff, my first layoff. So I had to lay off half the company, which was tough, 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 tough. Had to, while we were trying to get the deal done, I was extending everything on my credit card to just make sure that we didn't get into problems. So I was personally taking on a lot of weight and stress and pressure in terms of just uh, capital costs and things like that. Yeah. And then... As we came to the very end of the transaction, I was in this position where we could hardly make payroll. So it was a very, very tenuous time. Luckily, we got the deal done. We closed. Money came. We were able to take care of everybody. And then the company reconstituted itself. I brought in a new CEO. I spent the next year transitioning. And then a year later, I left the company and went to do my MBA at Columbia. So it was definitely like a razor's edge. So we got lucky that we exited. Definitely didn't get the value that I think we had built in the business. But, you know, I was 28 years old, like I, I still felt rich. <laughs> it was, you know, it's, it was an outcome that was uh, at that age still feels like you've achieved something. And so I felt pretty good about it. And that, that paid for my MBA that paid for basically, you know, everything that led to my next career option a few years, a few years later. Yeah. And also after that, I think you started a, a business, which is basically financing Chinese yeah. companies. Uh, that I thought was interesting because you're always like first it was the dot-com opportunity and then the the big China opportunity after that you've yeah yeah you've been part of both yeah so I think I think I pride myself in the idea that I've I found myself to be relatively malleable in terms of how I apply my skill set I'm I'm I've become generally good at like running and building businesses and then the category component of the business is something that I pick up and learn along the way the uh, the the China export finance business originated from an old school buddy of mine from Harrow yeah. that was running a pretty big seafood company in the UK, and they were sourcing all of their production of frozen seafood out of China. Yeah. And he was complaining to me. I mean, it was big. It was like a billion dollar revenue company, so it was a big company. But he was complaining constantly about the antiqua- antiquated nature of the financial system there and how. There was no solution. You couldn't fund transactions. Everything had to be basically out of pocket. You had to do these cumbersome letters of credit or send big deposits, all this stuff. And so immediately I was like, well, we can solve that. Like that, that's a very solvable problem with technology. And so I partnered with him. He took a chairman seat and I ran the company. 
And we built this business, which looks a lot like the lending businesses that exist today. Yeah. You know, it's almost, yeah, 15, 20 years later, which is really interesting because, you know, back then people weren't really doing it. And I think even in that scenario, we innovated a few interesting things. We, we used this bill of exchange format, which is like unique. It's not really even used much today, but it allowed us to create like documented commitments to pay from uh, credit worthy buyers who then we underwrote with AIG, who was our insurance partner. And then we took that paper was basically now commercial paper. And we were able to bank it across the syndicate of banks. But the key thing that we did is we put, made it all digital. So now we were, we had to validate the digital signatures would even be accepted in a court of law because up until that point, there was no document, there was no digital yeah. solution. And so we had to validate that we could do digital signatures and that they would be accepted in a court of law. We then went into China and then what we did, which I thought was, was, I mean, in retrospect, I think was pretty clever. We found a local Chinese manager who was, who was, had a son, had a bit of a Western education, had a really good caliber. His name was Meng Chong Wong, fantastic guy. If he's out there, if he hears this, I, I wish him the best, but, uh, we hired him as magic director in China. And as a result, we were able to build a very localized team in China. We were able to navigate the Chinese market as a Chinese company. Yeah. And that made all the difference in that time. I, I don't know what it's like now comparatively, but in that time, it allowed us to get away with a lot more things. Uh, we were seeing, you know, Citibank had to buy a hundred million dollar building to get a license to, to open an, you know, open an operation in China and this other bank had to do bad and. Like, you know, China was realizing that it had a really valuable asset and that people should pay to play. So we got away with that. We didn't have to do any of that. We were able to build under the, under the radar. And we ultimately got the first out of a, an area called Tianjin, the first factoring license in the country. And so now we were licensed to actually provide factoring services in China. And we built a full digital electronic system to manage all of the transaction flow that was happening between. Chinese manufacturers and all Western, you know, companies, European and U.S. companies. Yeah. And so it was a really, really like interesting, like, like innovative infrastructure that we built and ultimately built the company to about 140 million in revenue in 2009. Well, um, uh, I'll just in a minute about my even tougher experience through the financial crisis. Crisis. Uh, and then sold that company in early 2010. Yeah. So I just wanted to know, uh, what is a factoring license? So factoring is, is essentially, I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't call it factoring because it's, I think it's a bit of a primitive term, but the idea is factoring is you're taking receivables and you're basically funding against them. You're discounting them and funding against them. It's a, it's a form of lending from banking, but in China, you need a license to do it. You can't, I mean, in most places you'll need a license to do some kind of lending like that. And so we ran under the radar, just providing these services from offshore. And then ultimately we wanted to get licensed so that we could actually bring those services onshore in China. And we didn't have any regulatory restrictions or, or constraints. If we were going to build what we envisioned as a multi-billion dollar business, it had to be licensed in China. It, there's no way that you could do that and then continue to stay under the radar yeah. and build a big book of business. And so we had to we had to secure that kind of, it's a, it's a form of banking license or lending license. Yeah. Do you think VC, so now that you're a VC, do you think a VC should think like an entrepreneur? Like, yes, they do for two reasons. So I was an entrepreneur for 20 years after yeah. China's World Finance, obviously I joined the team at DigitalOcean and, and had a COO there for six years. And through all the companies, we had investors, we had institutional investors, we had private investors. 
And I could see in retrospect more so than anything, the points in time where I really struggled and where I really wasted a lot of time and a lot of resource and a lot of effort on things that could have been solved very easily. But I never had anybody that was proactively working with me and proactively, like someone on my shoulder was practically saying, Carl, watch out, you're about to hit a pit hole. Like you need to, you need to fix this or you need to correct that or you need to address this issue. And so on one side of that question, if an investor truly thinks like an entrepreneur, then they can really get in bed with the entrepreneur on how the business is being built. They can really think strategically about how to build that business and how to avoid the pitfalls. It's something that I really focused on now as a venture capitalist in the way I work with our portfolio founders to help them really navigate and accelerate them through the growth process without hitting all these roadblocks along the way. The other side of thinking like an entrepreneur is when I, when I, four years ago, I, I agreed to join my two partners, Carter and Corny. They already had a fund. It was a smaller, like more of a family office type fund. And, and they were looking to build their first institutional fund, which we were going to call fund two. And so they were recruiting me to come in and join them and help them build that. So I joined them as magic partner and I'm now, you know, help them launch that. Now we've launched fund three and, you know, next year we'll probably start raising fund four. Yeah. But one of the principles that, that we agreed on, which made it very interesting for me, is that even as an investor, I think you have to be thinking disruptively, you have to be thinking innovatively. You know, venture is also an evolving category. Yeah, it, This is not the venture evolved where you can make an investment, sit back and, and just, you know, wait for the money to come. Yeah. Uh, first of all, there's a lot more money at play, a lot more money out there. So people have many more options. Yeah. You have to win the best deals, which means you have to make sure people see value in what you provide. Yeah. And most importantly, to really get success in your portfolio, you have to actively help your companies and figure out how what's going to help them grow more efficiently, grow more effectively, solve problems that could ultimately kill them. Yeah. And and I'll say very, very proudly in the four years I've been at, at uh, M13, we have definitely, there's a couple of companies in the portfolio that are doing incredibly well now that I think you know, are highly related to pivots or turnarounds or, or proactive action that we've taken with the founders to help them solve the big problem, especially through the pandemic and, and the struggles that people face through that. So in summary, in, in two ways, you should think like the founder in the way you help entrepreneurs and the way you think about their business. And you should think like a founder in, in the way that you innovate your offering as a as a business of your own and i think those are very very important traits for the future of what venture is going to become yeah you're essentially saying that if you if you're a vc you should ideally have been an entrepreneur before am i right i don't think it's i mean you know i don't want to put it in that bucket there are some fantastic investors that have never yeah, not been <laughs> entrepreneurs never operated having said that there it's it's inevitable that the experience of building a business like reflects off of you so when i sit with an entrepreneur and i talk to them about their business the the experiences i've had reflect off of me and and create a connection that may be harder to create if you've never done that before yeah. but i don't think you can you know it's not black and white you can't blindly mm -hmm. say that hey if you haven't operated you can't invest that's not true at all there are some amazing investors that have dedicated their lives to investment and not to operating. Yeah. But uh, there's also, you know, some operators who are terrible investors. So it yeah. goes both ways. But, uh, but for me, 
I do feel that that core operating knowledge is just a really, really valuable asset for people to have when they when they're supporting founders. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with you when you say that, you know, you, as a VC, you need to think like an entrepreneur and like try to develop a edge or like be defensible. Because if you look at, yeah. if you read the, the websites of most VCs, they're all similar. They're all saying that, you know, we've been that we have done this before and, you know, we'll help you with this and that. I mean, a VC today is not the first person to say that. It was said by Kleiner Perkins 50 years ago, right? So, and uh, if you look back at the history of venture as well, like people who have made a lot of money have some sort of edge. You know, the guys who went to see China and saw a lot of opportunity there early before anyone else. So, yeah, I told you. Yeah. yeah. So, you also mentioned that you're in terms of support. And I, I read from M13's website that you call your support platform propulsion platform. At yes. You guys are not the only one. But we have a whole. This whole yeah. space rocket theme, so propulsion is it's just like in line with that theme. Okay. Okay. Also, may I ask, why is it called M13? It, it, that's also is like... A- the M13 is, stands for Messier 13, which is the name of the brightest cluster of stars in the sky. Nice. And the, the theory is that the combined brightness of the cluster is brighter than the individual stars you know individually so you know you put them all together and they they create a brighter cluster so that's the theme of how we think about the business and so really aligns with our with our culture in the business yeah and so everything you know if you look at our website and stuff you see a lot of like space and rocket themes yeah and so we have an incubation arm we call launch pad we have this you know this somewhere we call propulsion yeah so how is propulsion in comparison to, let's say, the platform model that Andreessen Horowitz had? Yeah, I mean, Andreessen Horowitz were investors in DigitalOcean, so I had first-hand experience with them, and, and I have to give them an incredible amount of credit. You know, they innovated, you know, where nobody else was doing platform when they first started doing it. And so, you know, platform, they, they're the ones that proved the platform even made sense. I think the the core difference in what we're trying to do and I'll let you know founders make their own assessments of of whether we're succeeding in this or not. Is the idea of a proactive approach towards business support versus a reactive approach? So we try to proactively identify. We work very horizontally as a firm, not vertically. Yeah. And as a result, everybody has exposure. All the different skill sets in our group have have exposure to a whole portfolio and what's happening across. The and so as we identify areas or opportunities to be very impactful, you know, different partners or different segments of the organization can step in and, and, you know, provide that impact. We, as a result, focus on being very, very proactive. So we talk about where businesses are going, what's happening with businesses. Often what I found is with the investors that I've worked with past and some great investors, but usually things only come to a head when there is a crisis crisis yeah you know you don't deal with a problem when it's just gestating you deal with a problem when it becomes a problem and i think our approach towards platform is to really think about it as much more of a you know mitigation and proactive solution so you know we've we've built these modular approaches towards you know how do you set up your okrs how do you think about you know product testing how do you think about you know all the core things that we know people need to do and as we recognize you know, how do you think about culture? How do you think about organizational design? And as we see companies potentially struggling with these things as they go through growth, we can step in and, and say, hey, you're about to launch in a different city or you're about to launch a new product. 
why don't we get together with you and, and strategize on the go-to-market strategy for launch? And we have a whole playbook and a whole framework that, that helps that thinking process. And so I think that's the core way in which we're trying to do this. I think more and more people are trying to go this direction and we feel like we're ahead of the curve and we, we're leading, you know, by example. But at the end of the day, you know, we're not the only people in the world. We can never say we're the only people in the world that are proactively helpful to the companies they work with. But we have over-invested in our operating group. So we invested outside of the fund to to build a, a more, you know, senior and advanced kind of operating team. And so we feel like we do punch a bell in terms of just the level of support and the level of of commitment we give to our businesses. And at the end of the day, the NPS we have from our founders really reflects that. So we are very we have a very good relationship with our founders, really high NPS, and it allows us to kind of really realize the benefits that we're we're providing to the portfolio. Yeah. And and when you say you have a, a operating team that's external to your core team, what, what do you mean and how does it work? Well, it's not external to our core team. What it is is that we have you know, a typical fund or our size at the fund two timeframe, the management fees really only give you enough to build a core investing group. You don't really have uh, uh, the funds to be able to build a whole platform and support organization. Yeah. So we actually invested $15 million over and above any fund management fees into our hold cover to, in order to specifically build an operating set of partners and an operating team that could fill that support requirement nice. we felt like our founders needed and so we came out of pocket economically to specifically drive that and then theoretically with fund three and then with fund four we catch up because obviously management fees grow but um but for a 200 million dollar fund which we were at fund two we were doing you know significantly more than uh, you know anybody else of that size would be able to do just because we invested and we actually actively built that organization okay so the operating expenses will still be met by management fee, but not now, like over a period of two, three funds. Yeah, I mean, we're catching up. We're still, you know, we still have this core investment in the business that gives us cushion to play with. But over time, you know, as the company gets bigger, you're able to to satisfy, you know, the costs associated with the operating side and platform side of the business. Yeah. I will say that one thing we really are focused on is trying to keep, even with scale, trying to keep that component of the business very true. So what you do find with big firms that have platforms, as they get bigger and bigger, the platform kind of gets lost and you don't really have the same impact as you had when it was a more boutique firm. And so we're trying to avoid that and make sure that we continue to to drive real value in everything we do on the platform side. Yeah. And another thing that you mentioned in terms of support, a lot of VC partners step in when there is a crisis for, for a Number uh, like a couple of reasons, right? One, because that's when you can really make a difference. And also, as a partner, you can't really scale because there is only a limited number of time. It's not a scale. I mean, it's not like a product, right? Software product. Yeah. So it makes sense to go in at the right time when it really matters. Yeah. That's but, but this is where the difference is. I, I don't think the right time is when a crisis has happened. The right time is when you have a leading indicator that a crisis might happen. Yeah. And so if, we, if we're able to proactively participate before the crisis happens, we can avoid the crisis altogether. Yeah. And so inevitably, there are going to be situations of crisis, but ideally, we solve them before they even become crises. Yeah. So how, 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 does this, how do you identify crisis early then? That's all experience. 
So, you know, a real obvious example is when a, when a company raises a bunch of money and, and goes through a growth spurt, you know, often they're not thinking, and we didn't with DigitalOcean, you know, we hired a hundred people in one year and, and, and I was in my second year with the company and it was a mess, a complete mess. And so people often don't think about that. They don't think about how they're going to manage culture, how they're going to manage communication, how they're going to optimize performance, how they're going to make sure that their team structures actually have cohesion and make sense. And so when we see them going into that direction, we sit them down, we do an organizational plan with them, and then we, we, you know, we push them to hire a head of talent. We do make certain recommendations that we know are going to solve for a lot of the problems that they'll hit once they've doubled their team size. Okay. And so, so it's, help them with cultural communication strategies, all these different things. So that's a very, very common thing that we do. And any company that goes through a ghost spot has the same potential problem. You know, there are other situations where we're looking at businesses and we're seeing problems in the business economics. So we understand that as they scale, you know, their CAC is climbing and we're going to have a big problem if they don't, you know, reinvigorate or reconsider their acquisition strategy. Yeah. So we'll proactively go in there and say, hey, we could wait six months and then you're going to be in a real bad financial situation. Or we can try and fix this now and improve your, your economics so that you're actually building a healthier company. And so because we have a lot of insight as to what's happening in these businesses, because we do that horizontally, it's not just the investment partner that sees that, it's the whole team that sees it. We're able to identify like directional problems that, that are leading indicators to potential risk in the future. Yeah. But this is still like a push model rather than a pull model, right? So uh, does that create friction? from the team, I mean, we're very careful about that. It's a very good question. First of all, part of our selection process of which founders we want to work with is an understanding of how well they take input and how we can work with them. And most yeah. founders we work with tend to be very collaborative with us. Yeah. Uh, there are situations where a founder won't be collaborative with us and we won't push ourselves. But, you know, it, it really depends on their relationship. I think we've developed a, a sense of trust or a level of trust with our founders where when we say to them, hey, there's a problem you should think about, they take us seriously. And then we talk to them about it and we figure it out. We're not by any means trying to be overbearing. We're not trying to get in their way. We're trying to just be a, a strong support mechanism. That's really yeah. how we think about it. Yeah. Well, so I was reading your investment thesis. Uh, so I kind of noticed a pattern that uh, you you kind of invest in pick, pick and shell businesses or like the, the infrastructure layer, something like the AWS. Yeah things like that so is that true yeah i mean to a degree i think when you look at our investment thesis the first thing you've got to think about is what are the categories and how do we think about the categories and so you know there are four major categories we invest in future of money future of work future of commerce and future of health and then we focus on on businesses that ultimately service the consumer so they can be b2b or b2b2c but Ultimately, or they can be infrastructure, but ultimately the benefit ends up with the consumer. So we're looking for broad usage, not these like singular, you know, big enterprise type businesses. And then one of the core things, so we, we've now on fund three, fund one, which was before I joined, was very, very heavy on the application that it was D2C, consumer, very product oriented. At that time, there was a lot of arbitrage. There was a lot of, you know, opportunity in social marketing, social media marketing and stuff. Like it was a whole new world. And so big businesses could be built. We feel that as we've transitioned to fund two and fund three, that application layer has become, the arbitrage has been eaten away. And it's been harder and harder to build big businesses of that layer. 
And so more and more, what we've started doing is looking at what are the infrastructure layer tools that people will build on top of that allow big industries to be built. So for example, in healthcare, we invest in a company called Canvas, which is a EMR system, essentially that kind of a core developer level EMR system that any telehealth or any, you know, health tech company can build on top of. And so now suddenly it's this kind of, it's kind of like a digital ocean concept built specific to that category. In fintech, we invested in crypto, we invested in a company called Lightning Labs, which basically provides technologies that sit in the lightning layer, which is a second layer on top of Bitcoin. It makes Bitcoin very, very exchange transactable versus just being purely a form of reserve. Um, and as a result, you know, that platform allows other companies to build transaction and exchange functionality on top of Bitcoin. And so we've trended more and more towards these companies that fuel the businesses of the future. And then, you know, now and again, we'll find like application layer businesses that are just really exciting that we think offer something unique to the customer, to the customer set and allow us to, you know, to get benefit from that. So there's a lot of interest in that infrastructure layer, but it doesn't preclude us completely from making application layer investments as well. Yeah. I think th this is also, uh, this is interesting to me because, you know, even my thought process having built a couple of things is that you should probably build infrastructure layer. <laughs> you know, the, the minute you start a SaaS company, it doesn't matter who, how many people are experimenting on different products and services, no matter what, AWS makes money. <laughs> so it's like, and yeah. it's a 79 True. billion ARR. And DigitalOcean. <laughs> yeah. Why love DigitalOcean. Yeah. Yeah. So then the, the your thought is like, okay, maybe I should do this. <laughs> Let everybody experiment what whatever they want. I still make money. And you yeah. you also get a similar thought when you even when you're shutting down a company, your your accountant makes money. I hate that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so, very true. And the lawyers always make money. Yeah. 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 So since you invest in a lot of like infrastructure layer startups, like what what are some of the common mistakes made by you know founders and team building such businesses that that you see? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because every business is unique, so it's hard to nail down like what's an individual single problem, but there are common themes. You mentioned already the the growth kind of culture components. Lots of founders, you know, get very ahead of their skis on on growth and on some team growth and stuff and don't really have control over it. And that can often drive to some level of implosion and that can be very risky. Another big mistake is not thinking about scale when you think about your economics and how they'll work at scale. And so, you know, some people build a model that works great in a small initial way, but then once it scales, it gets completely out of control. And then you find themselves driving themselves into the dirt in terms of it, cash flow and, and things like that, which puts them at real risk. I also think that as opposed to a year ago, cash is a big, big consideration in any business. I yeah. don't think, you know, one mistake I see a lot these days is people who did rounds at the end of last year and, and kind of are, are kind of bolstered by these valuations they saw are coming back to market or thinking about coming back to market, but realizing that they're not getting the same multiples and not getting the same valuations. Yeah, but psychologically they can't accept that, and so they drive a really hard bargain, and ultimately they get themselves into a lot of trouble financially. So right now, you know, preserving capital and keeping a lot of capital on the balance sheet, and making sure you accept capital, even if it's a little bit more dilution, is the thing that's going to save you know a lot of companies in this period of, of downturn. 
until the markets begin to come back again, hopefully in the next year or two. Yeah. So yeah, there's a, there's just a few things, but you know, there's all these idiosyncratic things that, that happen across different firms. And, you know, it's, there's this general muscle memory that you develop over 20 years that you can kind of feel and smell things when they're coming and they're not always the same, you know, often it's a different problem that, that started to create issues that people aren't expecting. Yeah. So the one thing that you mentioned, you know, how the companies look at scale and how do you assess like at a very early stage that I thought was really interesting. I read a, a medium post that you've written where you mentioned the value I seek can only be realized at scale. Uh, that, yeah. Yeah. I, I've been at that thought since yesterday. <laughs> where I read that. Because if you look I at a lot of I wrote that, but it's a good one. <laughs> Yeah, you know, if you look at it, you ask any early stage VC, they say that, you know, they look at product market fit and other things, but yeah, none of that matters, right? It really matters whether this company <laughs> can yeah. scale and are they capable or set up to do that. And yeah, so, yeah. So I would like to like go deep and like find out from you, like, how do you, how do you do that? Yeah, no, that's a really, really, I love that you pulled out that quote because it's, it's a great, it's a great quote and it's something that all founders should think about when they're thinking about their businesses. Up until a year ago, you know, there were so many like hot street business situations or businesses that, that, you know, in the moment, just, you know, really some TikTok video or do something that creates this huge flush of, of activity. Yeah. And from that, you know, a lot of investors suddenly get super interested and people start throwing money at the company. Company raises a bunch of money. Three months later, the company falls apart. Because there was never anything really there in the first place. Yeah. And so one of the key principles that we really, really pride ourselves on is let's look at the core business. Let's look at the core business model. Does this scale? Does growth scale? Does operation scale? Does, you know, the, do economic scale? You know, it isn't, it doesn't mean anything. You know, a lot of people celebrate that their seed company got a series A. That's great, but it doesn't mean anything until yeah. five years later or 10 years later when the company is looking at some kind of public offering or an M&A transaction. And so really we have to make a judgment call that these businesses can get that. And that's really what you're making your investment decisions against. Sometimes if it's a smaller check and it's early, you're just believing in the founder. But more often than not, you kind of have to have a real belief that there's a scalable opportunity and, and you know, this founder is working in a category that are in a business model that really makes sense at scale. Yeah, how can you say, like, you look at a business at a very early stage, you, you don't have much of a data. <laughs> like, how can you make an assessment that this can really scale or like the, the, the yeah. unit economics will be sound? I think... I think in an intelligent analysis, you can legitimately look at a business and determine one, how big the market is, how addressable that audience is. Is it a super niche that is really excited or is it something that has broad appeal? From a economic standpoint, you know, for example, we're shying away at this point from hardware a lot because hardware is just very difficult to scale. And so, you know, operationally can it scale? How does this run with a hundred million in revenue or a billion in revenue? How does it, how does the, the team operate? You know, you can, you can predict a lot of, I think this is one benefit of whether you've actually operated or invested in companies yeah. that grow into scale. Yeah. If you get a lot of muscle memory on what scale looks like. Yeah. And even part of the question is, can this founder run a hundred million dollar or a $500 million company? Yeah. And so, you know, 
I do think it's when you're in the weeds of a particular investment, you can effectively make a determination of whether you believe the, the business is scalable or not. I yeah. think that's a reasonable expectation. Yeah. So can I take an example? So I remember those bike sharing, uh, you know, businesses that, that bunch of people invested like billions of dollars. And then, yeah. yeah. So me and a business partner of mine, we did some unit economic calculation back then. It didn't make any sense. <laughs> I, I don't know how yeah. these guys... But then why why did why did so many people invest like billions of dollars, especially in China? Now we are left with like I think wine of in I think as I said up until a year ago, a lot of investors just invest in hype and momentum. Yeah. They didn't invest in solid businesses. And uh, sometimes you can make a lot of money in that. Like you take Bird and companies like that and they, they, you know, grew incredible values. And if you're able to get in and then get out while it was a high value, you'd make a lot of money. But the long-term value of the business that's being built is going to deplete back down to, you know, a very, very different set of numbers. So I, I think, I think, and I saw this a lot in my first couple of years investing, there's just a real energy and hype that centers around, you know, new things that are coming out because, you know, back a few years ago, you know, companies were becoming five, 10, $20 billion companies like super quickly. And so I think everybody just got a little greedy and was just, you know, not looking at the fundamentals of businesses and, and now, um, you know, just following momentum. A lot of people made a lot of money from it, but then again, a lot of people didn't make money from it. Yeah. I think now we're in a different world. And uh, you know, if we do, you know, if you think about fundraising now, it's not, it's not a momentum game anymore. Yeah. Everyone has time, yeah. which means if you have time, you're going to do more analysis. You're going to do more of an assessment on the business. You're going to, it's very different. You didn't have to rush to make a decision like you did a couple of years ago. Yeah. And so I think the decisions are much more thoughtful and, and frankly, a lot less companies are getting funded. Yeah. Yeah. So this is something that I also wanted to talk about. Yo, so what should startups do at the moment to secure funding? It's not just losing momentum, right? In terms of like the business spending from generally other businesses as is also like frozen hiring is frozen a bunch of layoffs then yeah it, it, it's yeah. like super hard so what yeah startups do? it's very very hard i mean cash preservation is important but one thing you got to remember is you still have to show traction and growth yeah so it's a very very difficult balance between extending the life of the business but also making sure that your metrics reflect an exciting company that people want to invest in. now is only the best companies are getting funded yeah, I mean, uh, so if I if if you take an example, okay, B two B SaaS product, okay, but if you look at the SMB segment or the startups, most most of them are very. I mean, they, they, most of them don't want to spend money in the moment. Then where where do you get the growth? But but maybe in enterprise, yeah, it makes sense. But if you're a B two B SaaS company focused on SMB and stat, startups, well, it's all about product market fit. Yeah, they will spend money, but they'll only spend the money on the things that really absolutely matter. So yeah. You take a product like Figma, people are going to spend money on it. Yeah. You know, but you take a product that is a nice to have and yeah, people must have. Yeah. So it's these are, you know, it's all the level of product market fit and the value that, that these offerings provide. And if it, if it has a fit that really works, then there's still a big opportunity in terms of what that can become. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I think uh, what's interesting with SaaS is. You know, you pay per seat and often, you know, it's not always like a $20,000, $30,000 bill that the company pays. It's 
sometimes like with Figma, you might have like three people using it. So, you know, if I think the idea with those companies is they just want to get the footprint. They want to be ubiquitous to, to the offering, to the service they offer. So anybody who's wireframing is going to use Figma. Yeah. And so if they can become ubiquitous, then their story is that, yeah, well, you know, our growth isn't as aggressive as it would have been a year ago, but guess what? We have footprint and when the market comes back, everybody's going to be, this is ubiquitous. Everyone's going to use it. So your rate of growth is going to accelerate significantly on the other side of the downturn. Yeah. Yeah. Being ubiquitous, I, I think what you mean is like being part of your workflow, right? Yeah. Within, yeah. And by what I mean ubiquitous is like as a, as an offering, you are the key solution. The first solution that falls out of anyone's mouth when they think about that particular execution, like, hey, I need to wireframe. The first thing yeah. you think about is, yeah. And so, HubSpot, um, when it comes to the CRM, HubSpot yeah. CRM, or yeah, like those types of things, having that ubiquitous brand yeah. um, allows you to own and cat and, you know, do dominate a market. At the end of the day, when you think about wireframing or CRM, like, what's the alternative? You're going to wireframe in like Adobe Photoshop or you're going to like, you know, a CRM in, in Google Sheets? Like, that's not going to happen. So it's not possible. Uh, it's not possible. So people can't operate their businesses without these services. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, personally, uh, for CRM, yeah, you, there's no, no way I cannot not renew that <laughs> as a yeah, business. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, other than, you know, a business being still sound, what what are the other things that a startup needs to do to secure funding at this? Yeah, so startups should definitely look at their existing investors. There's a lot of inside routes happening now. We've done a few ourselves. I think it's the responsibility of your existing lead investors to support the business and help them through this time. So that that's a key part of, you know, of of what people should do. And then I, I think it's it's just hard work. Like you need a much broader net. You need to speak to more people. You need to be out there more. The good news is you're going to get a lot more quick no's, so you're not going to waste your time. Yeah. But it only takes one company. It only takes one investor to believe in you. Yeah. So you can speak to 100 investors and they, 99 of them could say no. If one of them believes in you, then you're done. You've got your deal. So it is a numbers game at this point. Yeah. It's about speaking to a lot of people. And then also just being willing, you know, getting the feedback being willing to iterate. I mean, traditionally, when you talk about investment, you know, there's this whole adage that, uh, you know, if you ask for money, you get advice. If you ask for advice, you get money. Advice, you get money, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and the whole concept of that is develop those relationships early. If you know you're going to go out, raise money in Q2 of next year, go start asking VCs for advice now yeah. and start, you know, establishing those relationships because ultimately you want people to know you exist. You want companies to be tracking you they're far more likely to make, you know, positive decisions if they know who you are, they know what the company is, they, they're excited about. Yeah. Yeah. I think Scott Cooper mentioned that, uh, ask you for advice when you want to raise money. Yes. Yeah. yeah uh, so th this has been great, Carl. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Raul. This is fun.